Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. But let's read this chapter for context here. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, again, we come before you asking that you would help us, Lord. We need divine help by your Spirit in order to understand the truth of your Word. Father, these are not just words on a page. These are your living Word, which is quick and powerful, which has ability to convert a soul and strengthen your disciples to correct us and rebuke us as needed, Lord. Father, we are your people. Help us, meet with us. Be gracious to us, Lord, as we know you are in Christ, so that you will receive all the honor and the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Love the sounds of the little ones. It's a blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord, a heritage from Him. We give thanks for all the children in this church. This morning is Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection is the hallmark of what makes Christianity Christianity. 
There is no Christianity possible without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to give a sense of the weight and gravity of resurrection, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, where he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Resurrection is absolutely essential. It is essential that we might be saved, that our sins would truly be forgiven, and that we would have a hope of everlasting life. And it's also the great fulfillment of the promise of God, which he made to himself, brothers and sisters, in eternity past, that he would rescue for himself a people, and that his son would be his beloved agent in order to accomplish that purpose and mission for him. He did bring his promise to pass. His son is risen from the dead, and we are here this morning to testify of that truth. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What I'd like to do this morning with you all is take us through the account of the resurrection from the vantage point of Matthew's gospel. And you can't really do that without having some understanding of the other gospel accounts um, to really corroborate and harmonize the story. And so I'm going to attempt to, to do that somewhat this morning. But really what I would like to do today, and my prayer is this, that the Lord would help us to see not just an account of the resurrection of Christ and the power that accompanies this resurrection, but the spiritual importance of this text for us today and for all of us in the church universal. That's what we need to see. So God, help us. Teach us your word. Now, look at verse 1 with me. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So the timing here is after the Sabbath. The Jewish Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday. Jesus, as you'll uh, remember, was crucified on Friday. This is the day after. This is the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. Um, And it says, as the first day of the week began to dawn. Now, the Sabbath in, in Jewish Timing. This is important to understand for historical context. The Jews reckon time from sunset, sunset to sunrise in the south, in Judea, the south part of Israel. In the north, they reckon time from sunrise to sunrise. But in the south, sunset to sunset. I think I said it the other way, excuse me. Sunset to sunset. So here we are, Saturday evening is the end of the Jewish Sabbath at sunset. Then begins Sunday morning. But this is as the day began to dawn. So this is early Sunday morning as we would understand it. 
as the sun is just beginning to come up. There is some first light in the sky, but mostly it is still dark. John's account actually says that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was still dark. And we're told that Mary and the other, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene, of course, being the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. She had become a follower, a disciple of Christ. She is from Magdala or Magdala, a town in Galilee, so where Jesus grew up in the north. And the other Mary, we're told, is Mary, the mother of James. And there's two Jameses in the 12 apostles. This is James the Less, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew identifies her as one of the women who was watching the crucifixion from afar. Matthew's account also includes another lady who is described as the mother of Zebedee's sons. Zebedee is the father of James and John, who are brothers and both apostles, two of the twelve. And she, the mother of Zebedee, who is also referred to as Salome, is grouped in with these women in the gospel accounts. Mark actually mentions that all three of these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Salome, all came to the tomb together. Luke's account mentions another woman named Joanna. Joanna is described as the wife of Herod's steward. And then there were other women as well who came to the tomb. Apparently, we don't know their names, but there was a group of Women. These are disciples of the Lord. These are women who have been followers of Jesus from Galilee, and they have followed him to minister to him. All four of the Gospels attest to this tomb. This tomb is owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's described as a rich man. He's a prominent council member, and the council is a reference to the Sanhedrin in Israel. The Sanhedrin would have been like the supreme court of Israel. It's the highest ruling tribunal of the land. There were 70 members of that council and one high priest. And so the 71 total, Joseph was described as a prominent member of that council. He was a good and righteous man. He was, we're told, a disciple of the Lord who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, He was... A disciple, but in secret, for fear of the Jews. But it's encouraging that he did not participate in the council meeting that condemned the Lord Jesus when they tried him and arraigned witnesses falsely against him. He intentionally uh, abstained from that meeting. And we're told in the gospel accounts that on the Friday of of the crucifixion, this Joseph of Arimathea took courage and begged the body of the Lord Jesus from Pilate, the governor. After which he was granted permission, he took the body down off the cross himself. And he wrapped it in linens, fine linens. We're also told in John's account that another man joined Joseph, a man named Nicodemus, who we had met back in John chapter 3, the man who is described as a, a Pharisee and the ruler of Israel, ruler of the Jews, a teacher or the teacher of Israel who came to Jesus by night. This man, Nicodemus, together with Joseph, are uh, the ones who actually wrapped the body together. Nicodemus himself brought the spices, about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, uh, 
it's important to understand that the Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians did. They wrapped the body with linen and with spices to keep down the, the stench, quite honestly. This was the, uh, the time on Friday when they laid the body in the tomb before the Sabbath began at sunset. This was the personal tomb of Joseph. We're told in the Scripture that he had hewn this tomb out of the rock himself. It was in every respect a rich man's tomb. It was a tomb that was described as one that had never been used before. No death and no corruption had ever taken place inside of this tomb. It was a king's tomb in every respect. And in the Lord's providence... There's a wonderful testimony here about Joseph of Arimathea being one of these 71 in the the leaders of the Jewish nation who, it sounds like, was saved, who was rescued among the unbelievers, and who would fulfill a great promise from Isaiah the prophet 700 years before this time, which is a given to us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, which reads, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You see, Jesus was an innocent man. He was born sinless of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He never once trespassed his Father's law. He kept it perfectly And because of that, he was treated with honor and dignity in his death. Yes, at the cross, he was treated as the worst sinner of all time because of our sin. Our sins were placed on his shoulders. But I think it's a wonderful remark that we see this honor that's paid him by the Lord himself in his death. In Luke's account, we're told that the women who followed him from Galilee, this would have been this group that we just described, who come to the tomb on this Sunday morning, they observed the tomb and how his body was laid on the Friday. So they saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrap the bodies. Of course, these were men that these women didn't know. These were Judeans. These ladies were from the north And as Jesus was their Lord and Master and wanting to pay homage, respect to Him, they wanted to prepare spices and bury Him themselves, wrap them, wrap Him themselves. The problem was the timing. It was Friday evening. It was just before the Sabbath. They just didn't have the time to get the spices, to acquire them and to wrap the body. And so it seems that they waited for the Sabbath And then as soon as Sabbath was over on that Saturday evening at sunset, they went out, they purchased the spices, and they come now to the tomb on Sunday morning early as the light is just beginning to dawn. And they are coming to anoint the body of Christ. Another thing that we have to note is about about this tomb is how it was sealed, how it was sealed. We're told that on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees asked Pilate, if he would grant them a guard, a guard was uh, 16 Roman soldiers, professionally trained soldiers, to set um, a post at the tomb in order to prevent Jesus' disciples from coming and stealing the body away and telling everybody that he had risen from the dead falsely. Chief priests were enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and they were concerned that this story never come to light of the resurrection. So these 16 soldiers took post at Pilate's command. They sealed the tomb. And the, the word that's used in the Greek for sealed there means they, they set it with a mark. They marked it with a seal. Very much like in the account of Daniel. When Daniel was placed in the lion's den and the king set his seal to that tombstone, signifying that it was secure. So for all intents and purposes, this tomb of the Lord Jesus was as secure as it could possibly be from a human perspective. And so these women come to the tomb. They come in love with honor and respect for their Lord and Master. And here's the, real, the key point. They were not expecting a resurrection, a bodily resurrection that Sunday morning. They were coming to anoint a dead body. The Jewish mind concerning resurrection was that they believed in the continuation of the soul after death. And they believed in the final resurrection of the body, a glorified state at some point in the distant future. But they had no category for a physical bodily resurrection as Jesus said he had and actually had. Uh, Martha's testimony that we read this morning in our call to worship really highlights that well. Martha said to the Lord Jesus, I know that he, her brother Lazarus, Lazarus, shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was their mindset for resurrection. So the women come to the tomb. They, it seems, left their houses when it was dark or just beginning to light in the sky, but they didn't arrive to the tomb until the sun had fully come up. That's what we're told in Mark's account. So there's some time of travel here in the gospel account. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. A great earthquake. The, the word in Greek is mega, massive earthquake. And it is attributed to this Heavenly messenger, that's what angel means, angelos in the Greek. Sounds like angel, right? It means messenger or sent one. This heavenly messenger descends and is the cause of this great earthquake. Now, brothers and sisters, we should stop and think at this point. When does the earthquake in Scripture? Think of times when you remember the earth quaking. Perhaps it's Sinai. Mount Sinai, right? When the Lord came down on that mountain on the third day, he had told Moses, prepare the people, tell them not to go near their wives. On the third day, I will come down on this mountain. And he did. And he came down with a great display of his power, with fire and smoke, with thunderings, with the blast of a trumpet, and of course, with an earthquake. An earthquake. In Isaiah 64 this morning when we read our corporate reading, we read about the mountain shaking again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which you did not look. You came down. 
The mountains shook at your presence. Brothers and sisters, the earth trembles at the presence of the Lord. Just at the presence of the Lord, nothing is able to stand firm. Everything flees and melts away. Psalm 114, verse 7, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. What happened at the death of Christ after He had given up His Spirit and died in the body? Earthquake. The earth quaked. The rocks were split. The commentator Matthew Henry, who was a Puritan in the 1600s, had a wonderful comment on this, I thought. He said, when He died, the Lord Jesus... The earth that received him shook for fear. Now that he arose, the earth that resigned him leaped for joy in his exaltation. This earthquake did, as it were, loose the bond of death and shake off the fetters of the grave. Isn't that excellent? This is resurrection display, brothers and sisters. Resurrection power is on display. And so these women, they come to the tomb. The angel descends. And he descends with an earthquake and great power. And it says he came and rolled back the stone from the door. That word for stone is a generic term. It can mean stone. It can mean rock. It can mean boulder. Mark's gospel gives us good perspective. He says this was a very large stone. I found this helpful from the outline of biblical usage, this comment about rolling back and and graves in Israel. The comment is this, in Palestine, for a small grave, about 20 men were required to roll a stone downhill to cover the door of the tomb. The Bible tells us that the stone covering the door of the tomb was a very large stone. The women would have needed more men than even a full Roman guard of 16 men to roll away the stone. This was a major task. This is not a stone that any man can roll away by himself. Joseph, when we're told that he rolled the stone, he must have had a team. Many men to come and roll the stone into place. But here comes one angel, one heavenly messenger of the Lord, and he is able to roll it back on his own. Angels are powerful much more powerful than men. You might remember that account in 2 Kings 19 of the angel of the Lord coming and killing 185,000 of Sennacherib's army in one night. Angels are powerful because the Lord is powerful. This is resurrection power, brothers and sisters. If you're wondering when Jesus emerged from the tomb, Um, Mark tells us that he arose early the first day of the week. That's it. He arose early the first day of the week. And I found John MacArthur's comment really helpful on this. He said, quote, The stone was rolled back not to let Jesus out, but to let the women and the apostles in. If he could rise from the dead, he would need no help escaping an earthly tomb. End quote. I think that's absolutely right. The Lord Jesus rose. He raised himself from the dead. We're going to see that as we go. The power of God raised him. And this angel sat on the stone. He rolls it back and he sat on it. I mean, this is a picture of the power of God resting on what was formerly a prison of death for the Lord Jesus. Now that prison door is flung wide open 
and the power of God rests on it. Death has no claim on him anymore. What do we know about this angel? Verse 3, his countenance, his appearance, his form was like lightning. The word means bright, shining light, that which produces incredible glare. It would be hard to look at him, in other words. His clothing, his outer garment, or his cloak is described as white, not as the color white, but as the brilliance of dazzling, sparkling light is white. That's the white he's talking about. These angels, this angel, came directly from the presence of the Lord. He radiates the glory of God. God is glorious. No one can look on him and live. These angels reflect something of that. And so what's the response that you would expect? I think we see it here in verse 4. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, again, these, this guard, these are 16 professional Roman soldiers. These are um, people who had spent the night on guard. And then this scene suddenly happens. I mean, these are people, mind you, who were trained killers. These are people who had seen and done terrible things. They were not easily frightened. But these men, every one of them, the text says they shook for fear of him, the angel. Actually, what the text says, that word is for shook, is passive. It's they were shaken by the angel. Not they shook, but they were shaken. This is more than just a fainting spell for these men. This is the power of God to shake these men and make them become like dead men. I don't know what that means exactly, but they they fell down lifeless. This must have been like an intense shock, perhaps an induced coma that the Lord brought them into for a time. Verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, here is where it's helpful to understand, I I think, that there's some compression that happens in the narrative of these Gospels with regard to the resurrection accounts. Everything isn't stretched out perfectly linearly with all the timing that we might expect when we just read it. Um, That's really not the primary concern of the Gospel writers when they write about the resurrection. It's not to give a uh, historical account that we can understand in every single detail. The point is to provide irrefutable evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's what we're after here, so let's keep that in mind. So I think what is happening here when the angel says to the women, don't be afraid, I think this is happening after some time, after the angel had already descended, the earthquake happened, and the Roman guard fell from fear as dead men. This is happening later. Some period of time goes by. Why? Because When the women come to the tomb and the sun is up in the gospel accounts, there's no mention of the Roman soldiers for them. The Romans are just out of the picture at that point. And these women go into the tomb and they see the angel. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, speak of one angel. The women see one angel. Luke and John identify two angels. And some people say, well... Which is it? One or two? Remember how the angel's described. They're radiating such bright light, resplendent light. There could be two of them easily, and you wouldn't be able to discern it with your eye. 
In fact, it's interesting in Luke's account when the angels speak, the two angels, they speak with the same voice in unison with each other. We're talking about the power of God, loved ones. Um, at some point, the guard apparently come out of their stupor. Some of them are reported to go into Jerusalem and tell the chief priests what had happened. But I want you to see this. I think this is Matthew's point here. <clears throat> Notice the difference in the attitude of the angel toward the Roman guard as compared with the Lord's favored ones, these women. The angel answered and said to the women, in contrast to putting the guard into a coma and not saying anything to them, he speaks words of comfort to his own. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 1, verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? The angels are sent by the Lord to minister to the elect, loved ones, not to the wicked, to, to those who are not his own. He, he doesn't send them to them. He speaks comfort to his people. He says, do not be afraid. And they would, of course, have great reason to fear for the reason we just saw with the Roman guard. These are sinful women, just like all of us are sinful. And they come into the presence of God's holy angel. They say, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified See, the angel knows that they're looking for a dead Jesus. They're not looking for a re revived or resurrected Jesus that just wasn't in their thinking. And heaven is here bearing witness to that fact. The women were not expecting a risen Savior. Verse 6, he's not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. He is risen Aorist, passive tense. Actually, he has risen is technically what he says. He has risen. He's pointing to an event that happened at one point where Jesus was raised from the dead. And then these most important words. He is risen or was risen, has risen, excuse me, as he said. Those three words, as he said. Jesus had told his disciples several times that he would rise from the dead and that he would rise on the third day. Jesus not only said that he would be raised, but that he would raise himself. Incredible. Do um, you remember when Jesus was speaking about the temple or he was in John 2 at the temple and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said to him, this temple's been in building for 46 years. How would you raise it up in three days? But the text says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body, of his body. He had spoken of his death ahead of time and that he would rise on the third day. In John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I take it up of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. But now you listen to this text, which I think gives really good light on why the women, why the disciples did not understand that Jesus would rise from the dead bodily after three days. This is Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 31. Listen to this. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. And then this phrase, this saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Or in other words, they did not comprehend, they didn't grasp what was said. Why? These things were hidden from them. The Greek word there is crypto, (laughs) hidden, concealed. Why? Why was the truth of the resurrection hidden from the disciples? I'm going to let you hang on that just for a moment. We're going to see that together very shortly. But think about that question. Why was the truth of his resurrection hidden from his disciples? The angel continues, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Come. This is a, an invitation. It's a command and an invitation. He says, Come now, literally. See the place where the Lord lay. And what did they see when they went into the tomb? Well, they saw the place where the Lord lay, but there was no body there. We know that Peter and John both came into the tomb. They, they saw the linen cloths lying there. Luke says that Peter saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, meaning alone, without a body in them anymore. And Peter departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. John describes the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So, why why these details? Because if the body of Jesus were taken by robbers, if his body were stolen, the grave clothes would be missing or strewn about carelessly in the tomb. But given that he was packed in all the spices and linen cloths, it would have made a lot more sense just to take the whole body and go rather than unwrap it. But the grave clothes are here. The body's not there. The the grave clothes are organized. They're neat. Um, Alfred Edersheim, who's a Jewish historian, he writes this. These, referring to the linen cloths, as no sign of haste or quickness, hurry, but always orderly, leaving the impression of one who had leisurely divested himself of what no longer befitted him. So clearly the message to these women was the Lord's resurrection is an act of God, uh, not a scheme of man. The grave clothes were left behind orderly. The glorious angelic messengers are attending the tomb, and they're pointing to the word of Christ. He is risen as he said. This is a new kind of resurrection as has never been seen before. You remember when the, the Lord Jesus called Lazarus out of his tomb. He did not come out without grave clothes. He came out with grave clothes and he said, unbind him, release him. But the Lord Jesus, when he comes out, comes out with no grave clothes. Why? Because his was a true resurrection, not a resuscitation. Lazarus died again. Jesus rises never to die again. He leaves the evidence of death that bound him behind. This is resurrection despair power on display. Let's look at verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen or has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. 
The gospel writers had already given evidence, hadn't they, of the uh, death of Jesus Christ. We're told that he gave up his spirit on the cross. We're told that uh, the soldier pierced his side and out of his side came blood and water, which would have been sure evidence of death, most probably because his heart had literally burst. The pericardium sac that is around the heart filled with lymphatic fluid would have been the water that came out along with the blood. The Roman soldiers, again, who were trained executioners, their task in crucifixion was always to break the legs of the criminals so that they could stop pushing themselves up to try to take a next breath of air. In other words, it took a long, long time for them to die on the cross. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his bones because he was already dead. He had given up his spirit willingly. And by the way, with a loud voice, he cried. So his strength was still vital, even at his death. Here in verse 7 of Matthew 28, we now have a heavenly testimony that Jesus was truly dead. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He didn't just resuscitate slowly because he never truly died. He died. Have you ever thought about why Jesus stayed in the grave until the third day? It's an interesting one because we have these three wonderful words that happened on the cross. It is finished. Sin was paid for on the cross in full. That Friday, why did he stay in the grave all day Saturday and part of Sunday before rising from the dead. Why not just rise from the dead immediately after sin was paid for? I thought that was an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that much before. But we have to remember this. In this context, the Lord Jesus is proving that he has risen from the dead. He stayed dead as long as he could stay dead before he had to rise from the dead. And why do I say that? Well, a couple of reasons. One, remember Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He spent the Sabbath day resting. Saturday. He didn't rise on the Sabbath day. He rested. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law perfectly. What else? We're told in the Old Testament that corruption sets in on the third day. You might remember with the Passover lamb, when they prepared the lamb in the evening of Passover on the 14th day of the month, the first month of the year. They were to burn that lamb whole, in fire, roasted, and eat that lamb that night. They were not to allow any of it to remain until the next morning. They were to burn the whole thing that was not consumed that night. Why? Same reason. Because of... Um, uh, putrefaction because of this contamination that sets in on the third day. So the Lord Jesus, I believe, stayed dead to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law. He stayed dead as long as he could, but before corruption would set in on the third day, he raised himself in power. And in so doing, he fulfilled the prophecy of King David in Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow his soul to remain in Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, not one ounce of corruption. The Lord raised himself from the dead 
on that third day before corruption set in. So, here's the message. Go, tell his disciples he is risen from the dead. Now, this is an amazing honor that the angel bestows on these women. This, this group of women, whoever they are exactly, they are the first messengers of the good news of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the first ones. These are the faithful women who stayed with him during his crucifixion, watching from afar, and even after his death. They were right there. They watched him be buried. They came to the tomb with the spices to honor him. They loved him. And the Lord bestows a wonderful honor on them, not on the apostles initially. It's very interesting. Those who had forsaken him, this band of apostles was scattered, really. There was a group of ten of them that were in the upper room in Jerusalem. Thomas was missing. We don't know where he was. For a week he was missing. There's two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, separated from the others. Emmaus is seven and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem. That was a good hike, a couple hours. But these women are brave. They risked themselves for Christ, and they're given a special honor as the first heralds of his resurrection. Now, from this point, they go out quickly from the tomb in verse 8. They go out with an interesting combination of emotions, fear and great joy. Mark's account says that they trembled and they were amazed. I mean, we don't know exactly what was in their minds at this point. What we see is obedience to the message of the angel. But did they really understand the full import of what had happened? I mean, they had seen the, the glory of this angel, the glory of God in this angel. They were terrified. But they run to bring his disciples' word. So they are in this path of obedience is what I want you to see. And look what happens. Verse 9, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. Literally, be glad. Greetings. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. This greeting that Jesus gives, it's the same greeting that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary, the mother of Jesus, before she conceives. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so it is here. The Lord loves his people. The Lord loves these women. The Lord loves you, church. Highly favored ones. Rejoice. The Lord is with you. It's a wonderful principle here. It's a principle of whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. If you have even a little faith, but it's a genuine faith, like these women, the Lord meets these women in the path of obedience as they're following the command of the angel, and he meets them. They're not expecting to see him until Galilee in the north. But he intercepts them here to encourage them. They, they don't even have to say anything. They just bow before him. We see a posture of humility, as is the case with every true disciple of the Lord Jesus. We bow at his feet and we humble ourselves before him. You know, this also tells us something wonderful about his resurrected body. This is no phantom appearance. This is no ghost that they see. They take hold of his feet. There is a body here. 
It's a, it's a glorified body, but it's a body. It's material, yet it's spiritual. This is so interesting because we're told that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. He is the, the first of, of this new kind, of, a, of, of having a body that is glorified. And all who belong to him will rise in like manner. So our ears should perk up spiritually when we see something like this. What is this resurrected body like? We're told that Jesus was able to change his appearance. Um, he did that with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He changed his form. They weren't able to recognize him. And it's not until he opens their eyes that they're able to see him. But then he vanishes from their sight. Amazing. Um, Mary Magdalene, John tells us, the gospel writer John tells us, that she supposed Jesus to be the gardener at the tomb. She didn't recognize him at first. But she did recognize his voice, Mary. She says, Rabboni, Master. So good. Jesus broke bread with his disciples in his resurrected body. He ate a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb in front of the disciples in the upper room. He showed his disciples his pierced hands and side, and he told Thomas, in fact, he commanded Thomas, touch me, put your finger in my hands, put your finger in my side, be not unbelieving, but believe. My Lord and my God. And here's the comfort of the Lord himself, not of the angel, but of the Lord Jesus himself, risen from the dead to these women. Jesus said to them in verse 10, do not be afraid. He silences their fears. He puts an end to every fear and doubt that they, no doubt, have filled in their hearts. And he says, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So he reiterates the message of the angel. We're told that these women, they do go. They're obedient. They tell the disciples, the apostles, first the 11 without Thomas and then with Thomas a week later, and the rest of the people, whoever they were, this group in Jerusalem. But after they told the apostles, Luke tells us that their words, the words of the women seemed to the apostles like idle tales, and they did not believe them. They didn't believe the firsthand eyewitness account of these women. Not just their testimony from the angel, but their testimony from the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. They didn't believe it. The women were obedient to go and proclaim, but the others were disobedient to the word of these women. Peter and John, were told, went to the tomb. They saw the linen cloths. They marveled. Peter marveled. He was amazed. He was perplexed. But then he and John, in fact, it's interesting, John says that he believed. But then both he and Peter go home to their houses. And my question is this. If they truly believed, why didn't they go to Galilee? That was the instruction. See, I, I think true belief always evidences itself. True belief evidences itself by obedience to the Lord. You know that you believe if you obey Him. They were convinced. They may have had weak faith, but they still had genuine faith. They obeyed, even though they were afraid. And here the Lord honors that faith. He strengthens that faith himself. He comes himself and intercepts them on the path. What a grace. The rest of the disciples, 
they're not convinced until the Lord appears to them in person as well. That's what has to happen. The Lord Jesus has to appear to them. And of course, when he comes to them, he rebukes them. He rebukes them for their hard-heartedness, for their unbelief. But I want you to hear this as well. These were his beloved. Even though they were hard-hearted, he was going to bring them to belief and full faith and conviction so that they could be those who turn the world upside down by his power. He loved them. He rebuked them because he was a father chastening his children. He loved them. I mean, you think about Thomas, and it's really unbelievable, the, the hard-heartedness of a person. Here, the, the ten apostles, minus Thomas, but also with others who were in the upper room that first night, Resurrection Sunday, that evening, the Lord Jesus appears to them. The doors are locked because they fear the Jews. Jesus just appears in the room. Whether he passed through the wall or he somehow opened the door and closed it without them noticing, we're not told. But he discloses himself to them, to ten. They see, they believe. Then a week later, Thomas is with them, the same upper room. And Jesus has to appear and tell Thomas what he does because when the apostles had told Thomas, all ten of them, before that point, before the second meeting, this is the Lord. He's been here. We've seen him. They, Thomas did not believe. Thomas didn't believe the ten who were the apostles. Amazing. It's a testimony to the hard-heartedness of a man until the Lord opens his heart. Hmm. So, back to the earlier question that I left us hanging on. Why was the truth of the resurrection hidden from the disciples? Here it is. Because the risen Lord Jesus must himself convince us of the truth that he has risen from the dead. Jesus himself must do it. He did it with these disciples in order for them to believe. But Jesus said this to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We haven't seen with our physical eyes, have we? No. But we have believed. Why? Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sent after he had ascended to heaven, 50 days after his resurrection, that Spirit convinces us, we're told, of righteousness and judgment and sin. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Christ is the one who convinces us. So that's how it happens today. The Spirit of God must convince us Jesus is Lord and he is risen from the dead. These disciples didn't have that uh, ability just yet because the Spirit was not poured out yet as he was after Pentecost. So Jesus himself fills that role and he provides that witness in person. I want to... I want to transition to some application here. I mean, we've, we've talked about an account of this resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How does this apply to us? I'm convinced this is far more than just a, a mere historical accounting of the facts of Jesus' resurrection and his power. I really see a, a rich spiritual truth in this, brothers and sisters. I don't see this text, Matthew 28, or really any of the gospel accounts, as simply an account of Jesus' resurrection, but really a model of his resurrection power at work in each of us. Let me explain what I mean. 
This verse, Romans 8, verse 10 and 11. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What does that mean? That means that the very power, the resurrection power we've been talking about that raised Jesus from the dead gloriously is the same power that raises you and me from the dead spiritually first so that we can believe and live sanctified lives of holiness and also so that we will rise from the dead bodily at the last day when he calls us. It's that same resurrection power that is at work in each one of us. Here's what I see in our passage. The Lord is clearly sovereign. He must be the one to come upon us with great resurrection power, just as the angel descended from heaven upon that stone. The power of God must come to us. It must descend upon us. And you know what? The heart of man in the Scripture scripture is described as a soil, isn't it? In the parable of the soils or of the sower. The Lord must shake the earth That includes the heart of man. He must bring down everything that is lofty and exalted. That's all of us in our pride. He shakes it down to the ground. He humbles the pride of man. And he visits his people with salvation when they are not expecting it. Just like these women. They went to the tomb. They were not expecting to see the risen Lord. They were expecting to anoint a dead body. Isaiah 64.3, we read this morning in our corporate reading, when you, Lord, did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. He is the seeker, loved ones, not us. He comes down in his good timing and he surprises us by shaking us to the ground, humbling our pride. What about this stone that gets rolled away? Ezekiel 36 says, That in the new birth, in the new covenant, the Lord takes out our heart of stone. And he gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new spirit and he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we will obey him and walk in all his way. A heart of stone. In a sense, I think what, what we could think of here is that the Lord must descend upon this large stone of our hard hearts and roll that away and take up residence in our hearts. That's not something a man can do. No one can roll away the stone on his own. The Lord Jesus must do it for us by his power. And he gives us a new heart in its place, a believing heart, a tender heart. What about this messenger, this angel? Is God's own word, his scripture, not the messenger? It shines gloriously, It exposes the darkness of the human heart and is both powerful and pure. Nothing is hidden from its view. And it is tested seven times, very pure, reliable, and true. That's the Word of God. It's His testimony from His own lips. And then when the Lord descends in power upon our hearts by His Word, He brings the fear of God to the hearts of sinful men, doesn't He? He knows how to bring his commandment with power to our hearts so that we understand something of the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. And that makes us tremble 
It gives us the fear of the Lord. He develops that in us. He then directs his people to his written word, the word of Christ, and to what he said. Remember those three important words? He is risen as he said. And then he gives them the evidence of his son's resurrection in his word. He says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, those of you who may not know the Lord Jesus personally, come, see the place where he lay. It's empty. The grave clothes are there, but there's no body there anymore. All the evidence points to a powerful, divine resurrection. The soldiers weren't invited into the tomb, but we are. Come. He invites you to come and to see this great sight. And then the Lord strengthens the faith of the weak by intercepting us as we are in the path of obedience. In the path of righteousness, He reveals Himself to us by His Holy Spirit. How? In His Word testifying to the truth of Jesus, 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 over and over again throughout the Scripture. That's how he strengthens our faith. That's how he strengthens our faith. We see the risen Christ in his word. And then don't miss miss this, loved ones. To all to whom he reveals himself, he directs them to gather corporately as brethren. I didn't go through those particular verses, but I did read them initially. What happens ultimately here is the eleven go to Galilee, to a mountain which the Lord Jesus had appointed for them. They gathered together, in fact, in the very place where the Lord had gathered his people in the first place, where he called his disciples. There in Jerusalem at the resurrection, he sends them back to Galilee, where they were first constituted together by him. In fact, that's the likely location of the more than 500 brethren to whom Jesus appeared at once that we're told about in Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a large gathering that likely took place on this mountain in Galilee. This is really a picture of the church where we gather together. Is he not present with us when two or three are gathered in his name? Amen, he is. And then he commissions us to go. In fact, the text reads, As you go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He constitutes us as a church, and then he sends us out with his power so that we can accomplish his will, not our will anymore. Do you see that? What happened to those who had no interest in the Lord Jesus, to these Roman soldiers and to these chief priests, they gather together in Jerusalem and they conceive and receive a deceptive plan really to look out for their own best interests. But the church is about the interest of the Lord Jesus. We're not about our own interests anymore. Brothers and sisters, do you know if this resurrection power has come upon you? Maybe it's never come upon you before this morning and you wonder, how can I have this resurrection power? How do you know if the stone of your heart has been rolled away and you've been given a new heart? I just want to give you five brief things in summary just to consider as we close. Here's the first thing. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? You may not have had a dramatic conversion experience uh, 
physical earthquake, great lights like we're reading about in Matthew 28, or even like Saul's conversion experience on the Damascus Road. That was an incredible change from darkness to light. Not everyone can identify with that, and they question their own salvation because of it. You may not be able to remember the day that you first repented and believed, but nothing less, mark this, nothing less than the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ coming upon a person's heart to bring conviction of your own sinfulness and of the holiness of God, nothing short of the power of God can do that to bring the fear of God before your eyes. He has to teach you the fear of the Lord. And if you fear Him, praise Him. It's good evidence that you have resurrection power in your life. You fear the Lord. Secondly, you see the evidence of Scripture and you believe. When the testimony of Scripture points to Christ, that He died, in fact died, and not just died in the abstract, but that He died for you. He took your sins upon the tree and paid for them completely. And you believe that message. And then you look to this scene at the garden, at the tomb, and you see Him risen from the dead. You believe that he has been raised from the dead, that he never saw corruption, and that he lives forever with an incorruptible body now, never to die again. You believe. You, you see the grave clothes. You, you see the empty tomb. You see the heavenly witness, and you believe. It's good evidence that resurrection power has come to you. Third, you, the witness of Scripture leads you to the risen Jesus himself. He convinces you by His Holy Spirit that all these things that we're reading are true. No one can convince you of that. I can't. No one has any power to do that. Only the Spirit of God can convince you that these things are true. And if He does, then you believe and are believing. Fourthly, you worship the risen Christ. You humble yourself before him like these disciples, these women. They fell at his feet. They grabbed hold of his feet and held on to him. That's faith. You humble yourself and you love him. You worship him. You recognize that his resurrection was really your resurrection that you've been brought to life spiritually because he's been brought to life and that one day you will be brought to life bodily just because in this and in the same way he has. So you worship the risen Christ. He is your priority now. You serve him. And then fifthly this, you gather with the church where Christ is present together with us. And your new life is one of obedience to the Lord's commands. It is said of you, you're not only a believer, but you are one who testifies of this word of truth to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and to his glory, to everyone. It now becomes part of your life, your fabric, your being. That's how you know that resurrection power has come to you. May it be so with every one of us. Lord, help us. Let's pray.